Hi, welcome to Next in Ed. I'm Joe. And I'm Julie. And we're excited to have back today with us a guest that we had before, Mr. David Ackridge, who is the Informational Technology Director for the Mobile County Public School System. Yes, the largest school system in Alabama. That's right. Welcome back, David. Nice to be back. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, great to have you. So the last time that we had you as a guest, we talked about the 24-hour television channel that, that the school system has, and that led into some other discussions about how that might could be used and how we're moving forward with that. What I'd like to talk to you about today is the network, and specifically the Wi-Fi, the internet access that the school system has, and kind of in the same format, we want to think about what was it like in the beginning, and then how are things moving along with it today, and then what do you see coming up in the future for this type of technology within the educational realm? So if you don't mind, let's just jump right in. Talk to us about uh, how did this come about? I mean, the the internet is not that old, and so at what point did the school system start working with it, and, and especially, I guess, really the Wi-Fi? So my... Uh... <clears throat> My, my career predates not only the internet, it predates the network that was here. Uh, actually, even before we were using modems in 92, it's amazing. 92 doesn't sound like it was that long ago, but, uh, you know, it was nearly 30 years ago. So it's, wow. it's, uh, that's a long time in technology. <laughs> a lot of things have changed <laughs> in the classroom. And, uh, so yeah, when I first I started see. working in this department in 95, uh, we were using dial-up modems, which some of the people won't even know, won't but it know used telephone is. lines right. to call back and forth. It was just very archaic. Even even for that time, it was very archaic. And uh, I think what, uh, what we found was that when the Internet really took its place, starting to get attention in 96, 97, was wooden for us in a district where – websites become the thing and email started search engines yeah i remember in the classroom uh, that was a big thing that was yeah great to that have. was that was uh there was navigator and all kinds of other crazy uh netscape and all kinds of right. uh, of browsers and stuff so um we started looking at how we could get our high schools interconnected and we used uh some technology that was it wasn't much better than dial-up modems, but it was it was it was fast for the time, but it was very expensive. It was copper lines, kind of like we use with telephones. And then we went. Uh, we needed to get a system set up for the entire district. Fiber optic cable, which is widely used, that's everything that's used today, was just not heard of. There was no fiber optic cable buried in mobile up until you know up and then around 2000 there was no ring around the city there was nothing there so that was not an option to build that out would be ridiculously expensive so we went with a company called trillion that uh, you'll might notice if you pass any of our schools here in the county you'll see some tall antennas uh, that are on there those were from the trillion days back in the early 2000s these were line of sight antennas. In other words, they had to see each other and they would broadcast the signal back and forth over microwave radio waves back and forth. Was that very reliable? <laughs> it was, it worked, <laughs> but it was not very reliable. Um, we had, because they were line of sight, 
wind would knock them out of sight or out of line and rain would cause problems. So we constantly had to get the company, had to come in and climb the towers and realign the antennas. And one of the, they was, it was like a ring type of thing where one school fed off to 10 other schools. So if that one went down, half the county was down. So, you know, at the time it wasn't that bad. It was really cool to have all of the schools connected. Uh, we didn't know any better. And then um, sometime around 2005, 2004, 2005, as Internet became so increasingly uh, important, we had a company here called Southern Light that was a fledgling company in Mobile had just started, and they offered to build out a network of fiber optic cable and then also in the outline areas lease uh fiber optic cable from Mediacom, which is a which is a cable company. And so that provided us an opportunity for the first time to use fiber optic cable. And so with E-rate money, and I, I, I know some people may not be familiar with E-rate money, that is a, a grant that we apply for each year that was set up, I think we're in year 22, so I think it was set up sometime in, in 96, 97, uh, it is money that comes from a tax off of your phone, your cell phone bill. You notice there's a tax on the bottom of most everybody's. It's like a dollar fifty. That right. money's collected by the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, and then we apply for money. And that money that you apply in the school district is based upon your poverty rate, free and reduced lunch, um, which our district is about seventy five percent, and we're a rural. Uh, we're a rural urban slash district, and so our total rate's around 85%, which means uh, for every dollar that we spend, we match 15 cents, and the government through that FCC program pays 85, 85% of that. So that would be, yeah, that'd be 15 cents, right? My math, am I using the right math? I believe so. I think so, yeah. <laughs> we'll agree. So, <laughs> so and, you know, and that doesn't sound like a huge deal, but when you're talking about the network we have today is about $220 million. Wow. That's $220 million. Only paying 15% of that is a huge deal. It's a game changer for districts to be able to have that. That became where we are today. We have 1,600 square miles of fiber optic cable scattered from Calcedever and North right next to... North Mobile County. Yeah, yeah, it's right next to Washington County that goes all the way down to Dolphin Island, which is a barrier island in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, we have a large geographic Yeah, 1,600 district. square miles. And so uh, if you look at the state of Rhode Island, I looked it up one time. Rhode Island is 1,400 square miles. That's a good comparison. So we're actually 200 square miles larger than the state of Rhode Island. And wow. we serve how many schools? Uh, serve 89 schools 80. right now. And, you know, f probably counting pre-K all the way through with our special ed population and other populations that we have, probably 57,000 kids. And we have some 8,000 employees. So, you know, it's a fairly large organization to try to provide internet for. So in the early days when this was really getting rolled out, say, I say early days, we go back to the, the early 2000s. <laughs> those, are, right? those are early days. <laughs> early, early days, days for the are. internet, right? Yeah. So um, what did that mean for the teachers and the students in the schools? What, what did that 
allow them to be able to do at that time? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, it brought the internet to each classroom, which which wasn't really, I mean, we had it in a lot of library areas and things, and there wasn't a lot of Wi-Fi. There wasn't a lot of wireless access in the schools. And we had to build that. I mean, even though we weren't paying but 15%, we still didn't have, you know, all of the money to do it all at once. And so uh, we we began to build that. And the first thing we needed to do was get that backbone built and get Internet to each of the schools. And, and really it provided a lot. At The first was administrative. I mean, it was, it was an administrative necessity. We needed to get our student information system connected where we could gather school counts and Correct. people needed to do payroll. And, you know, everything was moving real fast into that. So it was an administrative type thing that we needed to take care of first. And then I think, I hate to say it, but the classroom almost became a byproduct of that. But uh, I think quickly it became a research tool for the classroom. Well, I remember just when when we got Wi-Fi, most of it wasn't administrative to put in grades mm-hmm. and to keep up with our documentation. And then eventually more educational products were coming out for the classroom. Right. Yeah. So, and, and one of the big pushes that we had was over the next seven or eight years, there was a huge push from this office to get a lot of the software and things that we're using that were server based, that was loaded on machines to get it to work through the internet. Uh, We call that hosted and non-hosted solution. So a hosted solution means a company does all the server stuff and and we just go to the internet, use their software. There was a big push to move that so that I didn't have to have hardware on site and we didn't have to install hardware. If there was updates or things change, it all happens at the company. That was a huge push and Many, many school districts, not just Mobile, was demanding companies to move in that direction because, you know, it's hard to scatter people 1,600 square miles to update machines and to, to keep software going. And we're down to like one or two pieces of administrative software today that's like that, and those are about to move too, which is a huge help, huge help. About to move. So, you know, I'm thinking about just the – the, some of the newer technology that's out today. So at the time that this infrastructure was being built and s- classrooms were starting to have access to the Wi-Fi, the tablets had not even been invented yet, right? So maybe the iPods were first starting to come out. One like of the big things was the clickers. Remember the clickers? Right, the, the remote clickers, the, the, right. The polling clickers. I remember those, yes. So, so you, you basically had a set of like 25 of them and they had a – different buttons on there and those hooked to the internet to the network and so teachers would ask a question the kids could vote yeah i remember having a clicker when we taught together joe that's right yeah, yeah. that's right so you know, had things like that you had uh you had webcams or or whatever they called the, the right the, we thought oh that was so cool they replaced the cool overhead stuff. projectors <laughs> you know from the time the all right the I, I the Elmo's. digital cameras, yeah, yeah digital document Elmo's cameras. document cameras. That's document it. Cameras, yeah, that's so right. so you had those. So, so you had. I mean, gosh, that's been 15 years ago. And we now forgot what it is. We can't even think about it. So, um, I, you know that that kind of technology is what we had, and and you know our network wasn't like able to handle much more than what we were doing with administrative because even though we had plenty of of network out there we we just it, 
the bandwidth, which is the speed and how much can travel through there, was was limited. So let, let's talk a little bit about when these mobile devices did really start coming about. I think there was, and I remember it wasn't too terribly long after tablets and, and the smartphones and all that started coming out that some schools districts started talking about doing a, a one-to-one between the, the technology and the student so that the student would have provided by the school system, they had a tablet or they had a, a laptop, but that's not the, the path that, that you guys chose to go. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So it was basically a decision that said, Buying, at that time, there was no $200 laptops. Um, it was a decision to say, do we try to buy 57, 58,000 devices that are going to last two or three years and then have to rebuy those at tens of millions of dollars? Or do we take uh, several hundred thousand to a million a year over the next several years and put that together to build a network that would allow any student to bring anything or teacher to bring anything from home. And it was the necessity of what we had the money for. The money was there because if, if money would have been there to say, you can buy 50,000 devices every three years and all you have to do is pay 10%. Well, E-Rate just would not pay for equipment. It E-Rate basically pays for whatever it takes to get the internet to the school. That's, you know, all the wiring and the switches and hardware that's in the wall and, and your actual service that you pay. But it doesn't buy the equipment to put in the student's hand. Not my decision. I think it should. Uh, and I hope some E-rate people are listening. I think that there's money there for us to do that. We should do that. But that's not the route. And so we decided that we're going to make a network that's going to allow a child to bring it in. I mean, we had some kids that brought PlayStation Mm-hmm. handheld PlayStation things. I mean, I, you can hook just about anything to this network. And those clickers that we talked about became those devices that the kids brought. Um, they weren't had to be those portable clickers anymore. They brought their own device. And a lot of people say, well, not very many kids bring stuff. Well, we have about 40,000 devices a day when we were in school. 40,000 devices a day that connect to the network that are not school system Wow. So there are devices being connected. Yes, they are. And, and so, I, you know, are they all being used for education? Probably not. But it does provide a safe, secure uh, area for students to connect. There's no Facebook, YouTube, and those kind of things that social media and all of the obvious stuff is blocked. But it does provide it. And it, I think it's been successful. Now, with the onslaught of $200, $150 laptops such as Chromebooks, we, we can start moving in a direction, but now we're going to have both. We're going to have the ability for schools to buy one-to-one devices to send home with kids, but you are also got a stellar network that's probably comparable to anything in the Southeast United States. I mean, it's, it's, it's really this, – this is a Department of Defense-grade security system on a network that, that to me is – I challenge anybody to say they have one better. Wow, that's impressive. And that's, you, you say the Department of Defense, didn't you guys get like 
approval or there was something I read something about that where they yeah we had uh, well we just we we've had some companies certify and verify things that we have done with that and some of the tools that we use from Cisco are the Department of Defense uses also wow for security yeah I would venture to say uh, we're probably one of the most locked down districts but still not anywhere near safe enough to say we're not vulnerable because we're very vulnerable. Sure. Everybody is. Right. And you have to constantly be on your toes. Right. So you've you've built up this this amazing network and now we've got you know, you've got forty thousand plus devices connecting on a daily basis. Thinking about the future, where where does this go from here? So what's what next in yeah. it? What's, what's next? next? <laughs> so what what what's do you see coming this? coming down the so line? So you would think that after so many years with the network that we wouldn't be doing anything exciting, but that's so far from the truth. And I, the next thing is a terminology that will become pretty commonplace. is called dark fiber. Wait, what? Dark fiber. Fiber. I, I like that uh, term. Dark it dark just really fiber. sounds it really sounds bad <laughs> to the bone. Is that, a, is that a Netflix series? <laughs> so, it does I mean, sound like it. Really sounds awesome. And and uh, the first series time I Star heard Wars. that term, I was like, I'm gonna be buying what? Uh, basically, what that means is is right now we are sharing a fiber optic line through the company Unity Fiber bought out Southern Light, and we are leasing the fiber and kind of like an extension cord in your yard it's run out to the end of the yard and multiple people are using it plugging up their tools and everybody's sharing that extension cord that's kind of how the fiber is we're we're using this fiber in hospitals and and school systems and everybody's sharing it well what they're going to do is they're going to lay out through e-rate money they're going to lay out our own fiber that will be our own extension cord that's run out and no one else is plugged into it. And we get to determine what's plugged into it and how much. And the reason we say it's dark is because the company doesn't provide the hardware because fiber optic cable uses light. Mm -hmm. I mean, it emits light through it. That's how the information travels. Plain old, just light. Well, it's dark fiber because the company is not providing the hardware to light the cable ah. we provide the hardware it's our hardware and it's we lease the dark fiber optic cable from them that's not lit up we light it up ourselves so it's kind of like they give us we release the extension cord we provide the electricity and we decide what gets plugged into it and nobody else gets to nobody else can it. use it and so what that does for us it provides us almost an infinite amount of bandwidth we 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 can determine at the school's how much traffic and how fast and how every so if i got a school over here that's doing tremendous amount of video which takes up a lot of internet bandwidth and a lot of a lot of traffic i can give them more and i can smaller school i can take less right now it's kind of across the board right well uh, i know as and, an educator for, that's so helpful well because and, we don't know that we're even doing that and just just for maybe some people are technical there i think we have a gig connection to each school that's a gigabyte of data that can be sent back and forth. Uh, we're going to move to 10 gigs between schools with the option in the future to go to 100, which sounds ridiculous. But uh, we do have that option in the future with, with this dark fiber. And uh, prior to the coronavirus, I don't really know. We, we're, we're told that it's going to be ready July 1. 
Uh, I'm not really sure where the status is on that right now, but we're going to be ready to pull the trigger on July 1 with our own network um, that my department will maintain and manage. And I'm just uh, – Sherry Moore is our network manager, and she's going to have a, a fun job of now making sure the schools are lit, making sure that they're up. If there's anything other than a, a fiber cut, it's going to be our responsibility to fix but it gives us so much control over what we can do. One thing that you mentioned uh, before we started the the podcast was you, you mentioned the, the pandemic and it brought to light some information about internet access that, that some of our uh, our children don't don't have, right? Can you tell us a little bit about so, so we've always kind of wondered what percentage of, and there's been a, there was a twofold thing that happened with this. We did a survey and the first question in the survey was, uh, do you have access to internet in your home? And we didn't get specific with that. Um, obviously some of them have hot uh, cell phones and that, that gets them to the internet, but do you have internet in your home? And so we did that survey and it came back that there was like 15,000 homes in the district that uh, there were 6,000 that flat out did not have any kind of internet and some that just had, you know, uh, cell phones. And that just brought to light to us what we had always known is that there's a lot of students here that don't have internet. And we, we've put in for grants in the past and we know that there's stimulus money coming out that's going to be earmarked for distance learning. And we're putting together another package to try to get what we would deem a mesh around the city, which would push our internet cable secured, you know, filtered, and the student would log into it. So it would be you would see it all over the county, but only the students with their login from the schools could log in. And it would be the same internet, same network they use at the school would be in their home. And another thing, we, we actually took the data. We had the addresses of the families that took the survey. And one of the most amazing things, my prejudgment, I guess, would be certain inner city areas would be the ones that would say we don't have internet. But when we plotted it, it was distributed equally across the entire county That's of students that say, I mean, we had yeah. as many students in Sims, we had as many students in the Theodore area the as we Rural did down, areas as, we as did well as suburban. Well, as an educator to provide that level of <laughs> equity for, for our students. That's, that's amazing. We're talking having this much of this 1600 square miles that we could get with that particular coverage would be a, Game changer. I mean, you think about a $12,000 a month internet capacity that sits from 5 in the afternoon till 7 the next morning with no one using it. Well, what about if that was used at night for, you know, education? And even, even if the kids wanted to play or do things, it would be within a safe realm of what would be allowed through the network. And Correct. I just think it's something that we've wanted to do for a long time. But the COVID-19 has exposed how much of our students don't have internet at home. And statistics show homes with some type of internet do so much better financially in the, in the future as they learn, as they do. There, there are statistics. We used it in our last uh, – there's a correlation with poverty 
and not having internet at home. There is a definite correlation. And it will be a game changer for a lot of people. I I, I think it will. I mean, you're looking at education, you're looking at kids being able to do things at home and learn at home and do, and this is going to break the cycle and and move people forward. I I have no doubt. And it's going to be the next thing that, you know, I've had four or five things through my career that I've said I want to do before I leave. And this is going to become the next one that I want to do. That's really amazing, David. I, I think that all of this that we've been through lately has really shown a light on that inequity in terms of access. And what what you're proposing here is, like Julie said, this is a game changer yeah. um, for the students within this county. And that may end up serving to be a model for other school systems as well that exactly. are... Because everywhere is faced with the same situation well we we want to be ready for the next time this happened because i feel like it's going to happen again and, and if we can do this for this for our size of a district yeah, as large as it is yeah. then others can follow well david we certainly appreciate you coming back and talking with us again and uh, i'm sure there's uh, many other topics we could we yeah. could hit on with you in the future so uh, thanks for joining us today and uh, be with us next time as julie and i explore What's What's next next in Ed? Don't forget to subscribe. If you like what you heard, please rate and review this podcast so others can find us. The Next in Ed podcast is brought to you by the Mobile County Public Schools IT Department in partnership with the Department of Counseling and Instructional Sciences at the University of South Alabama. Engineered by Tim VP Media Production. Music by... Justin Matthews, hosted by Dr. Joe Gaston and Julie Neidhart. Follow us on Twitter at NextInEd and on Facebook. Guests on the podcast are expressing personal opinions for informational purposes only. They are not necessarily acting as official representatives for their schools, universities, organizations, or places of employment. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.